You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know I am. I am joined, as I am always joined at the very first recording of this new year, by the memorable Marshall and Maverick, Mad Wizard Merwin. Happy New Year, Chris. Uh, Happy New Year to you too, Sean. And with New Year's comes new things, like you are doing this thing full-time now, right? The whole writing, recording podcast, all that stuff. I am. I've decided to take some time and no longer working at my normal day job, and we're going to see how this works. But... I love starting a new year, and I really love starting a new year with some new focus. So this is going to be very exciting. So what what are we talking about today? What are we, something about twenty eighteen, new beginnings, new everything? Yeah, I thought what we would do is kind of talk about the podcast for just a second, what we do here, uh, how it might change, how it might remain the same, and you know, so for the most part, if you're new to the show. Welcome. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do on this show is we like to talk about everything D&D related. So one week we might talk about the hobby, you know, in terms of the larger entertainment world. Another week we might dig down into the nitty gritty of some rules. We might do a review of a new product one week. So we kind of jump all around, but we're always talking about this game, this hobby that we love. Mm-hmm. So, so this week what I thought we would do are look at four things that were posted online within the last two weeks or so, mm-hmm. um, touching on all of those things. So we'll kind of break it up and we will talk about all of these different aspects of the game uh, based on these articles, tweets, and and other uh, stories that have come out uh, in, the last, in the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. And if uh, those folks who are new, if you're not aware, my name's Chris. I, uh, I write and record podcasts and do all that kind of stuff for Mr. Rector Mark Productions and Down With D&D. And uh, Sean is my compatriot in this. And Sean, who are you? Uh, I am Sean Merwin. I have been doing freelancing in the industry for almost 20 years now. And, you know, I got my start doing um, administration for organized play for Wizards. And since then, I have worked on various products. I've worked on other games other than, than D&D. Uh, I have lost track of things that I have worked on. Uh, mm-hmm. That's how much work I've done. So uh, I am definitely heavily invested in not just D&D, but in writing and in role-playing games, and now in podcasting. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, with that, let's get on with our show. So the first article is uh, Robert Aducci. He's saying goodbye to AL, and he talks about AL successes and failures in an article that he had posted. And it was a really interesting article. Sean, would you like to start talking about it? Right. So as we, as you know from last week, when we interviewed Lisa Chen, who is joining the Adventures League uh, administration team, Robert Aducci is leaving. And so what Robert did was posted an article on the Adventures League website with some really interesting thoughts, I think, about his experiences with the Adventures League. As a veteran of about six different organized play campaigns over the years, I'm always interested to see not just what the general public thinks about organized play, but what the people who lead the campaigns think. Hmm. So I thought his uh, his article was pretty interesting, and I just wanted to point out some facts that he stated and then discuss them. And so the first thing he said was, let's talk about things that haven't gone so well, or at least not as well as I would have liked. Um, The biggest thing is the faction involvement. Mm -hmm. So 
the Adventures League and any organized play campaign tries to draw in uh, users, right? Players, people that consume that campaign. Mm -hmm. And they all want different things. So what this uh, what this campaign, the Adventures League, started with was a thought that when you started to play a game, you would have your character join a faction. And the faction involvement would carry a lot of weight for the narrative coolness of the campaign. Um, there was talk about the actual players themselves becoming leaders of the factions and kind of gaining status within the campaign as they played more, they would gain renown within their faction. And pretty soon they would be involved, not just in the playing of the adventures, but in the whole uh, overall structure of the campaign. As Robert points out in the article, this never happened. It's true. Um, they tried different ways of making the faction involvement mean more than just a name at the top of your character sheet. But as, as happens with many of these campaigns, it is much harder to do something like that than you originally think, especially if you don't have all the resources at hand that you would need to do so. Um, factions, I think are a cool idea, but unless you have people with the time and the energy and in some cases the money to be able to put together that framework within which the actual players could work their way up the ladder and have more of an involvement in the campaign, then there's no way to do it. It's true. It's, um, you know, the factions, the faction play in the campaign, it's too bad because they wanted I think what they were kind of angling at was almost a sort of um, live action role play aspect to it in some ways because they wanted these characters to be leaders in these factions. And that means they start getting to make decisions. So that means you start needing people like the D&D AL admins. And when they had a structure in place, like with regional coordinators and local coordinators, maybe you could have done some more of that stuff. But um, like because then you would have had a communication chain for for different areas to funnel information for like what people were trying to do who are in in leadership positions and like with the digital communications that we have but that takes time and management and you know effort and it seems like they just didn't have the time or the management ability because they were trying to manage a bunch of other things like it's a project that has a giant scope that they didn't have the resources or the time for right and this has been done to a limited extent in previous organized play campaigns uh, uh living greyhawk had a large um meta organization component and so did living city long before that i wasn't involved in living city but i've heard tell of such things but definitely living greyhawk you had players creating their own organizations, drawing member characters into that organization, and then having an effect on the overall campaign. Mm -hmm. But Living Greyhawk ended up being consumed by its own weight in the long run, um, among other things that caused this downfall. That was, that was one of the things. So uh, the amount of pure willpower and energy to make that feasible is something that needs focus. And there was just not enough um, AL admin time to get that focus. And it never uh, went as far as it could have. Let's put it that way. But as you were saying, you know, at these big epics that they have in the Adventurers League, uh, you could have 
the whole room divide up into your faction mm-hmm. and then discuss amongst yourself how you want to handle certain things and then let the faction leader who's at that event, the highest ranking member of the faction, be the spokesperson for all those characters. Would have been pretty cool. Yeah. And so it's not that something like that can't be done. It's just it's hard to do that. And and we'll talk more about this concept when we talk about the regional coordinator, local coordinator uh, issue as well. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to the next thing then. So Robert, he said uh, the next thing you want to talk about, the things that went well and some of the things that he's going to miss. So one of the big things was he really enjoyed having the moon sea at their disposal at the beginning for the first few seasons. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, of course, as we all know, after season three, they went to Ravenloft and then to the Sword Coast for season five, and now we're in mm-hmm. Chilled for season seven. Yep. But uh, that Moon Sea is now for the convention-created content program. So um, he thought it was really nice because it created tight storylines. Uh, it was it was good to have all these locations and these places that you could really, really uh, hammer down and, and focus in on, and then you could have these repeatable um characters and locations that were easy to, to bring back all the time. And that's a really solid way to build up a campaign. So characters who were uh, familiar with these places in, in earlier seasons could then revisit them and see how they had changed and become different and revisit characters. And that's one of the actual ways to build up a campaign without being an organized play campaign. But with an organized play campaign, it, it probably has even more of an impact because these it's everybody getting to interact with these characters multiple times in these places. You can't really build a good campaign without a good setting. So this allowed not just the administrators to to have a setting to play with and keep consistent, but it also gave them a setting that had a lot of lore involved in Forgotten Realms. Mm-hmm. You think of Flan and you think back of Pool of Radiance and yeah. and, and all that storyline. Um, you know, Mole Master with its kind of evilness and its uh tight control of magic hills far with its first law that only humans uh, are allowed in the city you know all of those things make a good campaign based on previous lore that you can then alter as you move forward to let the characters um let the characters really create a new setting for themselves mm-hmm. so the last thing you wanted to talk about was that um Actually, next to the last thing he wanted to talk about was something that he considers a success, even though others might consider it a failing of the campaign. And that was that regional coordinator, local coordinator program. Oh, yeah. So to uh, to step back, the the success of any organized play campaign depends on many factors. But the what, probably the biggest one is the volunteer force, whether you're talking about DMs or organizers or other people to just plan things. It doesn't matter how great the adventurer the adventures are or how enticing the campaign is. If you don't have that large mobile force of volunteers, a campaign is just going to crumble. It's true. It's very true. So creating that regional and local coordinator program was a great step in launching the campaign. It was definitely necessary to answer questions about the campaign because no matter how much you put out on social media – or on your website, not everybody is going to be accessing that information. And it always helps to have someone in your area who you can go to and say, I have this question, or I want to start a game. How do I do it? That's very important. Um, One of the reasons that the program 
was terminated had to have been the legal issues with that Magic the Gathering lawsuit where volunteers from years ago were suing wizards for back pay for jobs they had done as volunteers previously. Yeah, which is interesting. And it was a fascinating legal thing, but it kind of caused a whole lot of trouble. Right. And I think, you know, it's, I understand why the laws are there that won't allow companies to use volunteers in certain ways, because then you're going to get corrupt corporations forcing people to work and then just saying, well, they're volunteering. It's not too, well, the law is there because it's been done. Yeah. So I understand why the law is there. Um, but unfortunately, the law is now, like many laws, going to go further than it needs to go. And it's going to cut off things like DMs or you know volunteers for something like the Adventures League. Uh, I, I don't think Wizards can actually say this is why we're doing it, because that would then be an you know, admission of something wrong. So you know they have not stated that is the main reason but i think it has to be a reason of course on the bright side though uh, with that dissemination of that not dissemination with the dissolution of that organization and that part of uh, what's going on with the with al i mean baldman games has stepped in to do some of that stuff and there's other groups like uh, the role initiative mm -hmm. and uh, wayne chang's group up in up in toronto that are that are now doing some of the same things that were going on before. I mean, there are a bunch of disparate groups that aren't necessarily working together, but they all kind of know each other because it's a small community and they tend to work together when they have to. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it that's that program is sort of still around in a, in a weird way. It's just not necessarily tied to Wizards of the Coast anymore. Exactly. As, as long as people continue to communicate and don't get territorial, then it's, it is the best of both worlds, kind of. Um, another reason, though, why the the program ended and it is a valid reason for sure it's because the bigger something gets the more volunteers you have the harder it becomes to control the brand the play the dissemination of information um and since there isn't an employment you know clause within that structure the the boss organization if you will really has no control over what happens it's true um you can't fire someone who isn't isn't hired that's right and while 99 percent of the people who were regional and local coordinators were excellent representatives of the game and the campaign there are always those outliers that kind of the rotten apple that taints the bushel mm -hmm. and you know sometimes those kind of people would either a think they had more power than they really had or be kind of just go off in some sort of strange random direction. And so those outliers in the long run can end up doing more damage than good if they're not controlled a little more closely. It's true. So, you know, that is a reason why it is hard to put together a volunteer program that ends up a sustaining itself and B being a positive in the long run. Mm -hmm. So, I, I hear what Robert's saying about that. It was the work that he did and coordinating all those people was amazing. Mm. Um, and the, the fact that it uh, dissolved should not be an indication that it was bad or wrong. It was just that it had too many strikes against it. Yeah, it, it was time for it to go away because it was going to cause more trouble than it was going to do good for the for the organization. And the last thing that Robert talked about was DM quests. Those are the cool things that started coming out on cards, I think in uh, season four, was it? Or was it season three? 
it was either three or four. But yeah. Yeah. They, they were like little metagame things, like little achievements. If you're familiar with Xbox achievements or whatever kinds of achievements that have come up, come up on Steam or other video games, it was a it was an idea that was very similar to that to go along with the DM rewards. And it was fun. It was it was nifty. It was something you could shoot for. It was uh, something you could watch for at least while you were playing D anD D or to think about after the game. It was like a meta game on top of the game, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, l- like we just said earlier, volunteers are, are the most important part of the campaign. And so without those DMs, you don't have players. Mm-hmm. And those this DMs quests is a good way to you know gamify that and to entice DMs to. To, to do it. I think it was a great idea. I think it was well implemented. I don't think it was too overpowered for the most part. Um, what the DMs were getting was mostly recognition, although their characters were also getting little uh, boons based on what achievements they had. Achievements like, you know, running a game at a premiere convention. Mm-hmm. or running the entire season of of adventures or running the hardcover for that season you know things like that um mm-hmm. so in 99% of that is great the only the one i always have to p- point out the 1% on the other side and that is the only risk that you get with something like that is that it takes the focus away from the D&D game happening at the table and DMs start focusing more on getting their cards filled out rather than on running a great game. Well, on the bright side, and, you can design around that because all you do is you design into the things that you were talking about before, like run the entire season, run the hardcover, because you're basically just telling people to go run the game. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so you, in a campaign, you always want the DM to be there because they want to run the game, not because they're getting something out of it and the back end, because then they start taking shortcuts to to get away from what they are, you know, what they're actually there to do. But for the most part, I think the DMs quest has been handled very well. Um, and I, I see nothing but a good future for it. All right. Well, with that, let's take a short little break to talk about an ad. So the ghost of whimsical splendor is by Christopher Gray. It is a short D and D adventure for levels one through two. It is 18 pages long. Here is the blurb. Waterdeep's beloved opera diva has gone missing, and it appears to be more than only a passing concern. With wealthy lords breathing down the city watch's neck, they must quickly find her so that the show can go on. But something dark is hidden within the deep recesses of the whimsical splendor opera house, and that darkness has taken the city's starlet. Can the darkness be banished, and can she be saved in time? Uh... There's a bunch of nice little stock art in this. There's a lot of charts. There's some chases going on in here. There's a bunch of wonderful um, encounters, and it's at an opera house. The maps are quite good, too. I would suggest clicking on the link in our show notes and going and checking out this adventure, seeing if it's something that you might want to pick up, especially for um, your early early level gaming in the City of Splendors. It's a level one to two adventure. It's really good, and it's by Christopher Gray. Sean, what is the next thing? We're going to talk about an article in Rolling Stone, right? Absolutely. Talking about D&D as a hobby in the larger entertainment world, Rolling Stone magazine online had an interview with Christopher Cox, the president of Wizards of the Coast. And again, here we see D&D reaching out and becoming, you know, something bigger than just the the game that it's been, you know, over the last 30 years. It's mm-hmm. it's turning into more of a cultural phenomenon. Which is good. And yeah. And so I wanted to pull out a couple of quotes uh, from Chris Cox to talk about with you. Sure. Hit me. Um, So 
here's the first one. Uh, Cox went about figuring out a new approach for the company as a whole, and he landed on something he describes as the, quote, castles and boats approach. The castles are the big brands with fan, large fan bases, high expectations, lots of history and lore. We spend a lot of resources on those, he says. The boat is more of a test. It's very fast, very flexible. If the boat doesn't succeed, that's okay. You can launch a new boat. D&D and Magic are both castles for us. So I found it interesting that, you know, he came in, uh, and if you don't know, uh, Chris Cox has worked at LeapFrog, Mm -hmm. um, that entertainment software, uh, educational software company. And then he worked before that on uh, RPG video games at Microsoft. So Fable, Doom. Um, you know, those types of games. He was the director of marketing and, um, something else over there at Xbox. It was, uh, it was kind of, he was a big deal over there is what it was. That's exactly. So he's coming to this, uh, his new position where he's been for about two years now, I believe, um, with this digital background, you know, strongly in his DNA, Mm -hmm. as well as being a player since he was about 10 years old, a player of D and D and of magic. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's it's interesting to read about their high level thoughts on how they're going to continue this great growth spurt that D and D has seen. Now, I really dug why he went with this castles and boats idea because um, Wizards of the Coast. He he he, uh, his, he posits that Wizards of the Coast has been very good about using their their big big brand big box brands for things, but they don't make new games. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're not really in the very good at at, at this whole new game thing. So. Um, on the right now, they have this this castles situation where magic is gigantic and D and D is once again experiencing this renaissance. But um, Hasbro has a bunch of other properties. They have things like Transformers and um, My Little Pony and, and things like that. So the boats in this idea, like they say, they're more of a test, but they're also trying to use these these brands, these other brands, to get these new new kinds of games started to to make basically new games and float them out there test them out get them get them going and hopefully uh let those boats then eventually settle and turn into their own kinds of castles Mm -hmm. yep and wizards of the coast is uniquely placed now to take those hasbro ips that forever have just been toys or cartoons or you know what have you and turn them into games Mm mm-hmm either through Wizards of the Coast itself or through Avalon Hill, the, yep. that imprint. I'm actually really interested in that Transformers card game that he was talking about. That's a yeah. fascinating design, in my opinion. Like, it's got the two different decks. One is your character deck and one is your, like, gear deck. Like, that's 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 a little different. I don't think I've seen that. I've probably seen that somewhere, but I can't think of anything offhand right now. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see not just how, you know, how Wizards of the Coast, the company, does those other games, but how they affect D&D in the long run. Mm-hmm. And, and we've actually seen some of that... Um, if you don't mind, I'm going I'm to talk about a different point now Do it. that goes along with that, with, with the, the D&D. So that castles thing has also got a bit of boats going on with it too, because uh, like we've had Murder at Baldur's Gate. Like that's taking an Avalon Hill game, uh, Betrayal at House on the Hill, and applying the D&D IP to it. Mm-hmm. But also in the very, very near future, like, I mean, not near future, I suppose, but we're about to get a movie, a D&D movie. They, like, they're, they're shopping around TV series for D&D. Um, there's a whole bunch of video games about to come out. So those are all D&D IP type things. And we've had D&D video games before, not a big deal. But we're talking to have by 2020, you know, another, you know, like like double digit numbers of games that are D&D related coming out. Yep. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the how 
how it flows up, you know, from D and D up to the new stuff, but also how it comes back down and affects the castle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I'm sure we'll be talking about that a lot over the next couple of years. Yeah, because let me tell you. And another point. I was going to say, because let me tell you, as soon as there's a D&D TV show, there'll probably be a bunch of episodes of Down with D&D where we are reviewing the TV show episodes. (laughs) Because I love me some television. There you go. (laughs) So another point I wanted to bring up that uh, Chris Cox said was, after three and a half years, we had our best sales of D&D in November. That's crazy. It sold out. And we have been struggling to restock. It's a great engine of play. He's talking about fifth edition. Yeah. There. Can we can we just so, can we just stop for a second? It's I know. I am. A, it's three and a half years into the game's life, and this was the best year for the best month for sales. Like that doesn't ever happen. I know. It's totally uh, totally crazy. And uh, you know, as someone who's been following not just the game but the industry for years, it's totally speechless. Totally, and doesn't have. Has a little bit to do why I'm willing to leave the day job to to come over here in case there is that crazy sort of growth. Um, you know, they will need people around it to to pick up uh, some work. So you know, it's 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 a larger deal than just oh, it's just a game. It's a business. It's an industry. Um, and to to finish off uh, the quotes that I wanted to talk about, here's one that you were mentioning earlier, Chris. We are looking at TV series and or movie deals as well as more web-based content and actively pursuing a larger slate of video games for D&D. Right now, we have a slate of four or five incoming in the next 12 to 18 months and five or six set for 2020 and beyond across a variety of genres. So, you know, D&D Dark Sun, uh, you know, maybe get some crossover with some sci-fi in there. Who knows what, you know, is coming for D&D. It's, it's a great time to be a D&D fan. It really is. Absolutely. Um, I mean, some of the stuff that I want to say about that, we're going to talk about later because we're going to talk about our f- thoughts and feelings about D&D going forward in 2018 and, and beyond. So I guess I'll just save it for that. Uh, we can move on to the next article if you'd like, Sean. Okay, so you know we've talked about the Adventures League, which we like because that's the official campaign. Mm-hmm. We just talked about the hobby in the overall entertainment world and in business. Now let's get down into some rules stuff. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, DM DM David has an article about how Fourth Edition proved uh, that D and D can work without saving throws. So why did they bring it back for Fifth Edition? Now let me start by saying I love everything that. D- DM David writes about. I love his blog. I read it uh, whenever he comes out with a new one. Love his, you know, dives into the rules and into GMing. Um, so it was really fascinating for me to to see his take on this. Um, and what he's saying is absolutely true. If you played fourth edition, you know that they got rid of saving throws. There was still something called a saving throw, but that was just basically a 50-50 coin toss on whether something affecting you continued or didn't. Um, But in place of saving throws, they had attack rolls that attacked your specific uh, specialized AC. So you would attack someone's reflex. You would attack uh, someone's fortitude rather than having them roll a dexterity saving throw or a constitution saving throw, Mm -hmm. because that's actively putting the player into the, uh, the chair of rolling the die rather than having something be done to them. So the ass that worked for, for fourth edition. 
So why did they bring it back? And it basically all comes back to the old sacred cows of D&D. Um, people felt that fourth edition wasn't D&D enough for them, uh, which is why Pathfinder was able to take the third edition rules and just republish them basically and make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, so that them bringing back that, uh, that saving throw really is about making the game feel more like the old D&D that it used to be for a fragment of the population. And if we go back to that Rolling Stone article, Chris Cox said at one point, uh, Watsy needs to shake loose from some of the trepidation that comes with such successes, like the success they're having right now, and continue to chase risky ventures, push changes despite the reluctance of longtime fans, and invest in new ideas. So I think he's talking more about um, you know, bigger projects that may be D and D related, but not a game. But if you take that and you use it in the microcosm of not um, being afraid to scare away longtime fans by by changing the rules a little bit, I, I like that thought. I like that. Be willing to make the game better, despite people being tied to some of these sacred cows. What do you think about that, Chris? So I I actually agree with everything you just said about the sacred cows thing, but there's also a design um, consideration here. So, and they talk about this in the article too, because I actually, I think I read this. This article is actually not, um, it's like three or four weeks old, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, the first time I read it, I was like, oh yeah, I get that. I get, I get what he's talking about in this, in this article, but there's a thing about when you roll the die and what the effect is on, on, uh, on play for like a um, engagement level and mm -hmm. um, a saving throw. Like you said, it, it puts the power in the character's hands. In fact, I'm always more of a fan of putting the die roll in the character's hands. Cause when somebody is rolling a die, it's basically putting the spotlight on them. Mm -hmm. If you think about that, as far as like storytelling and fiction, when you roll the dice, it feels like the camera's on you. When you are not rolling the dice, it feels like you are just being affected by what's going on. So like, uh, I mean, we could have, you know, parry rolls or, or, you know, armor saves and things like that. And honestly, I think that the game would play just fine that way in a lot of ways, but really that's not what the intention of armor is. That's what the Mike, Mike Merle said. Like armor is about deflecting stuff. You're not actually doing anything. Mm -hmm. You're just, you're, you're the, the, the precautions that you have taken have, uh, have protected you. So it does make a little bit more sense when, when your armor comes into play to not have to roll the die, uh, from, from that point of view, if you're thinking about the game that way. So. So it's really somebody else was actually taking the action. You just got lucky and didn't get hurt. Mm -hmm. So from design point and from a, a, a tone and spotlight point of view, when you're playing the game and what it feels like when you're playing the game, that is a really good reason to bring back saving throws because um, a, a save versus, you know, fireball means you are dodging out of the way of the fireball. Right. Do you have and a, I, you know, well, yeah. I, I just, one more point that he brought up uh, DM David, brought up was you know he's he's cool with the way fifth edition is and and everything but he, he uh had one point rules wise which i think is cool which is if you are being attacked by something that ignores your armor like an incorporeal creature that could reach right through your plate mail and touch you wouldn't it be better if that was something where you had to make a dexterity saving throw rather than them hitting your armor class and i thought that's cool i like that yeah, I love that. I think that is a perfect way to bring the touch attack back. Yep. 
because and that's so, that actually makes sense from the, the the spotlight point of view. Like something is trying to touch you, and you need to get out of the way of it. Your armor can't actually help it. So I mean, you're not you're actually reacting to not getting murdered. So maybe I'll be designing monsters in the near future that use that. Yeah, it's a good thought. I mean, I thought about it too. Like, but as soon as I read, I'm like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Yep. I saw some interesting conversations on the uh, on that article and also in other places about how ghosts aren't exactly incorporeal completely. They're made of some sort of ectoplasmic gel or whatnot. I'm like, well, I suppose maybe, but I mean, can we just say incorporeal is incorporeal and it just goes right. through stuff? Yeah. <laughs> I I think so. Yeah, I think so too. That would be my take on it. Uh, let's talk about this last thing. It's really interesting. I saw it earlier today. I think you started talking about it on the internet, on Twitter, and it was um, Adam Koble. And if you don't know who Adam Koble is, he's a pretty famous streamer. He was the one who got hired as the first um, like online game master on Roll20, if I remember correctly. And he runs all kinds of stuff. And, and he wasn't, actual- he the, wasn't he a co-designer on Dungeon World? He is, in fact, one of the co-designers right. of Dungeon World, yes. And all the others, a bunch of yep. stuff that and came he, out. So I saw a tweet from him this morning that really grabbed my attention. I thought I really need to talk about this with Chris. So Adam Cobalt says on Twitter, the most significant change I think D&D needs to make it really work for RPG a show is a way to maintain character throughout a campaign without taking the fangs out of the system, an alternate to death failure state. So what I think he's saying here is, hey, we need to make, to make some changes to D&D to make it as a good a game as it can for viewers of live play streams. Yeah, I agree. Basically. I mean, I, I, that, I agree. That's what he said. I also agree with him. Like, right. the, like this, com- this commentary, right? All right. So, so this is the, you know, in our overall podcast world, this is something else we've been talking about a lot lately. So that's why I wanted to bring it up, which is how is streaming of games and the viewership of those streaming games affecting our hobby. Mm-hmm. And so when I read this, I read the tweet and I, I I agree and then I get very angry and then I get intrigued and I go through this whole sort of realm of emotions all at once. So I tried to unpack it for myself. So the game designer in me first thinks, oh, okay, this is a cool challenge. Um, let's, let's make the rules of D&D so that you don't necessarily die all the time, you know, when you fail three death saves or if you take too much damage, but something else happens. So that's, that's my first thought. Mm-hmm. And then the old man Grognard in me says, wait a second. No, no, no. Don't change this game. I love just because there are people out there watching it be played. That's crazy. And then the storyteller in me thinks, wow, we are really going into some new territory. Now what we're doing here is we're actually creating a new art form, right? That we need to think about and we need to, to evaluate and we need to, to, to come to uh, the best game possible for this new medium. Yeah. And then the RPG and, you know, RPG fan in me says, wow, I wonder what other role-playing game out there would be better than D and D for viewers uh, to follow the story better. You know? So all of these things like come flooding at me all at once when I just read this one tweet and it's a pretty interesting thread to follow because it goes in many different directions on Twitter. Um, I want to get your thoughts on it, Chris. Uh, well, the way that I look at things like this when I see them is, yes, the game is not necessarily a self-contained game. It's not like a board game that we're used to that has a bunch of like specific rules and procedures to, to play said game. Like D&D is a modular game. Like You can turn the dials up and down on it constantly. So I don't think there's actually anything wrong with inventing a couple of other 
modules to attack onto it that make it better for streaming and for storytelling. Because as much as I am into the old school Renaissance style of play where you could die when you open a door, uh, I think that's great. I think that's really fun sometimes. That does not play always super well on television or on you know these streams, which are essentially new media television type shows where you want where people are really tuning in because they want to be entertained, they want to laugh, and they want, in the long run, if they're watching for a long time, uh, story arcs and characters that they can really buy into because that's a thing that 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 attracts people to constantly watching a uh, a repeatable television show or program, right? Like that's that's storytelling, right? We we buy into characters, so. Um, I didn't get angry like you did. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, I'm I'm pretty sure there's actually streams out there that play the game like that if people want to watch that. But those are not the most popular ones for specific reasons because they're not really telling compelling stories all the time because characters die all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that so I was like, yeah, let's 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 solve the problem. That's usually where I get to. I'm like, let's let's figure out how to solve this problem and make this game play better on on Twitch and on stream and for television. Cool. No, I you know I. I I wasn't angry like I was raging and fuming. It was one of those had all these emotions all at once. It was boom, 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 yeah. boom. And so then, you know, I tried to sit down and think. But it just I think that one tweet we could discuss that for several episodes, I think. Yeah, that's that exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with with all of the questions it brings up about the game and the hobby and and all of that and and you know, entertainment as a you know, viewing as an entertainment medium, a game as an entertainment medium, all of those things. Um, how to make certain playstyles actually entertaining as as a medium? Right. Like, how does the how does the old school Renaissance style of play actually work as as entertainment? Mm-hmm. Like, because then you could just you can sort of drive into the whole grim comedy part of it because you just describe the people when they die in the most terrible, awful ways possible, and understanding that the character isn't actually. The main characters aren't actually the characters that are playing. The main characters are the dungeon or the whatever that people are exploring. Right. And the story behind that. Right. Kind of a paranoia kind of uh, attitude where mm-hmm. it's it's the setting that's the the funny, you know, the, the the joke is the setting. Yeah. The characters don't matter. Correct. And, you know, I could see I could see certain streams where it's the players who are the entertainment, not the characters. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter what character they're playing. Um you know, they, they are the entertainment. Yes. Um, and, and so this goes, then the next step is like they do with regular broadcast television. What do the viewers most want uh-huh. and how do you best give that to them? Um, you know, then you start talking about focus groups that watch a show and give their feedback and, you know, and so it, it, it possibly if there was enough, capital behind it becomes a secondary um you know broadcast entertainment market i mean on the bright side as far as focus groups and things like that right now like you can actually just go and pull mm-hmm. the people who are watching certain streams at the moment to to ask focused questions to figure out what is really driving them and to see who is actually watching these things right and then you can actually figure out who your audience is and then you can market to them people if you want, or you can, those people if you want, or you can, you know, figure out ways to branch out to other people, other different kinds of people. You know what, you know what, Chris, I'm mm. really excited for 2018. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, I am too. Is that where we're moving to? We're just going to go right there now. Yeah. Cause all of this stuff, you know, like I said, we could talk about this forever, but 
Yeah, I really this wanted is, to, this. I really is, wanted to talk about how this to solve is, this problem because I thought Matt Colville was onto something, but we should probably talk about it some other time. Right? Yeah. I mean, we can come back and we can really delve deep into the game part or any part of that. Um, but this is hey, just. I'm I'm trying to get across my excitement for what we have coming. You know, in 2018 and beyond for D and D. Let me uh, let me let me throw this out there to the listeners. If you would like us to hear us talk about this subject that we we're just talking about, how um how to make streaming more entertaining and how to do streaming in a in a way with with the rule set that it is currently, or how to modify it to make it even better, we would love to talk about that. But we'll do it if you only want us to. So let us know. Mm-hmm. So tell me about 2018. Why are you excited? What are you stoked about? You know what I really hope for, Chris. I hope D and D continues to grow at the pace it's growing at right now. Because not only will then the hobby become stronger, um, it will also drive participation in all role-playing games as people come into the hobby and realize maybe I don't like fantasy too, you know, all that much. Maybe I want to get into some science fiction. Maybe I want to get into some horror, some other aspects of, of gaming. Um, it opens up doors to all of those. And then the rising tide lifts all the, all the ships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I hope that... Uh, we can bring the joy and the challenge of games to more and more folks. Let them share their stories. Let them grow their empathy for others as they play different characters, you know, and cooperate with each other and communicate with each other and just overall become better human beings by being social and doing a coordinated thing with others. That's yeah, absolutely. How about you? So I'm nothing but impressed with how D&D has bucked all the trends of publishing books for the past four decades, where they don't need to print books constantly anymore. They can take their time and make quality products, and then they can release stuff like two or three times a year instead of releasing stuff every month. And how they've been diversifying what they're making and selling their brand instead of just their game. I mean, this the brand of D&D has done all of those things, they're going to continue doing more and more of those things. And I think that's really different for an RPG or a property in general. Um, and it's been really effective. And a lot of the stuff that they make, like sometimes you see IPs that just make pump, pump, pump out a bunch of toys and whatnot that are kind of eh or whatever. Like they're just trying to get the the parents to buy their kids stuff and such. But I, I think that most of the stuff that D&D has put out, a good chunk of it, like 80% of it has been really quality products and i don't expect that to to cease in the future i i was actually just having that discussion with somebody that somebody was like yeah that that publishing death cycle i'm like no you don't understand they're not actually doing that they're bucking every trend that comes with that publishing death cycle and for those who don't understand the publishing death cycle the way it would work is like you would publish your core books which would sell the most early and then you would sell less and less and less and less until you were to a point where you needed to come up with a new edition because then you had to start your publishing cycle all over again and D is not doing that amen that's all i have to say all right oh yeah I got one more I, thing sorry sorry oh, one more thing i i hope they just keep building and, and growing towards 2021 when we have a D movie that doesn't suck i hope and I hope that it makes enough money that we get a second D&D movie because, I mean, I love me some D&D. I love me some fantasy everything. And um, it's been a while since we – since The Lord of the Rings. So, And that that unfortunate Conan movie didn't really help. So, <laughs> Well, you know, as, as we go through 2018 and talk about streaming, among the many other things we talk about, I'm sure that we will talk about the D&D movie again as more news about it uh, is released. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, with that, thank you everyone so much for listening. Uh, let's do a few Patreon shout outs. By the way, patrons, um, 
with Patreon's situation that occurred, uh, a bunch of people's pledges, uh, not their pledges, but their uh, their levels that they were pledging at got messed with a little bit. So if you could just go in there and re-up your pledge so I could put you back on the list where you belong, I'd greatly appreciate it. I can sort of guess at most of you, but I mean, I would it would be better if I could just keep updating the, the lists constantly, especially because if you're in on the $10 level these days, you get a uh, royal court name because you get to be part of the royal court. But in the meantime, Patreon shoutouts. Eileen Barnes, Toby Sennett, Garrett Cologne, John Carney, and Space Rhino. I hope you're doing well with your space hamster. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Download D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website, and for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out like those folks just got. Or for $5 a month, you not only get a shout-out, but also you get our pre-production show notes. And we do give patrons little extras every now and then, which I will be working on now more regularly. Yeah, and there's actually, like, I just wrote a game, like a brand new game that everybody who's at, like, $5 or $4 and up is going to get. So, like, I mean, it's not D&D, but it's a new game just for you folks. Anyway. Anyways, if you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. Those reviews help even if you're not listening to us on Apple Podcasts, since many podcatchers use Apple Podcasts as their way to rate and rank shows, and that would make us much more visible. Um, Sean. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. I knew what you were going to ask, Chris. <laughs> yeah, you, you find beat me, me on to Twitter it. At- yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or on the Down With D&D G Plus community, which a lot of people have just joined recently. So yeah. thank you so much for coming on and discussing D&D with us. How about you, Chris? Where do we find you? Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter at Down With D&D or at Misdirected Mark, which is the network's tr- Twitter. Um, you can also just go to the website and leave a comment there where you can catch other great shows such as this one. So Bone, Stone, and Obsidian is a Dark Sun podcast. Wayne... Uh, Wayne Polidian Chan and Robert Aducci, they take a monthly deep dive into Dark Sun, the setting, and discuss it across all editions of D&D. In fact, an episode just came out, which is why I'm, I'm mentioning it here. And they talked about the, the classic races as they are presented in Athos. So you might nice. want to take a look at that. Good stuff. Good history. Good information. Down with D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Sean, for the first time of 2018, what are we going to do? We're going to go kill some monsters. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. 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 I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D?